Welcome to Fast Talk, the Velo News podcast and everything you need to know to ride like a pro. Welcome to episode 94. We're in the same room. Nice to be back in Boulder with you. And we should for, I got actually two emails about this, about the axe murderer. I am alive. You are alive. You're I speaking. Survived. You're not bleeding at all. No, but part of this episode, we will have an interview later with the axe murderer. Oh, God. He some really good He's here? To say. Wow. <laughs> all right. Excellent. Well, we'll have on episode 94 an interview, a, yeah. an exclusive interview with the axe murderer. Yeah, we're well, going to be talking. Uh, one of the questions we're, we're going to address today is about... Uh, blood sugar levels he has a, surprisingly a lot to say about that <laughs> oh boy oh boy yes to to you've hinted at what we're going to talk about today we're going to talk about bonking and different ways your body responds to fasting or not being fasted and glycogen levels and all of that we're going to talk a lot about uh goals ambitious goals mindset how to set goals and finally, we're going to talk about, you know, a little bit about our one of our favorite subjects, the polarized approach, and how much variance you see throughout the season. We've been seeing a lot of questions from, from our listeners. We love it uh, by email, by voicemail. We want more. Please send them to us. We've got an email address, fasttalk at fastlabs.com. And we've got that Google voicemail system set up for you to call us and leave a voicemail. The number is 719 800 2112. And I love the fact that 2112 is a palindrome. Hey, there yeah. we go. <laughs> Anybody else love palindromes? I don't even know what a palindrome is. Race car always... is a palindrome. It's spelled the same forward and backwards. Okay. Bob, mom, dad. Those are simple ones. Another, I... a, a really good one doesn't really make that much sense, but go hang a salami. I'm a lasagna hog. There's a palindrome for you. Boom. Drop the mic. Chris doesn't get out very much. <laughs> we were actually talking before this episode. He's never heard of Baby Yoda. I have never heard. But of he him. knows that palindrome. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, this is true. Baby Yoda. Yoda's like a thousand years old. He was never a baby. Baby Yoda is 50 years old. Okay. So we've got a question from Carol in Rhode Island. And I'm going to read it to you. It came in via email. Sometimes I'll wake up in the morning and, without eating anything, go for a ride or a run and feel great, like I could do that ride or run a long time without bonking, despite the fact that I've not eaten in 14 hours or more. Other times I'll commute home on my bike, leave the office at 5 p.m. I've eaten, you know, lunch four hours earlier. I've had a snack an hour before I, I leave the office. But halfway through my measly 45-minute minute ride home, I'll bonk. Why is this happening? Am I in a pseudo-state of ketosis after being fasted all night, and therefore I'm burning more efficient fuels on my morning rides, whereas in my afternoon commutes, I'm gly glycogen depleted and suffering from a traditional bonk? What's happening here, Trevor? A couple things in that question that are really important to answer, uh, to be able to give an appropriate answer. First one is it's actually pretty hard to go into a state of ketosis. Remember that this is our body's 
emergency system. When you can't get enough glucose, this is the way it fuels the brain. Body doesn't naturally jump in and out of ketosis unless there's a need. So just sleeping overnight, not eating for eight hours, isn't going to put you into a state of ketosis. Uh, so that's not what's going on in the morning. That said, yes, you've usually overnight depleted your liver glycogen. You haven't depleted your muscle glycogen, so that's a little bit low. You are going to be burning a lot of triglycerides. They're going to be mobilized. Insulin levels are very low. So you are going to have an ability to really rely on fat for fuel if you get up in the morning and just get on your bike. Your, your body is becoming that sounds a, like a good thing. burning machine. It is a good thing. Now you have to be careful about what you do in the morning. And actually, so out of interest, I looked for some studies last night, did find one where they looked at the effect of doing different types of interval work after fasting overnight. Mm -hmm. So they had multiple groups. They had groups that did more of a traditional threshold type workout, a group that did a, a sprint workout. And then the sprint workout group was divided into those who just did the sprints fast. You know, so they, they didn't do anything special. They just woke up in the morning and then did the sprints without eating. Mm -hmm. uh, another sprint group that uh, consumes a, a carbohydrate drink before doing the sprints. So the things they found were the group that just got up, went and did the sprints, you saw a real drop in their peak power. Sure. You couldn't put out that big power. Uh, the group that consume some carbohydrates before doing the sprints, they perform much better. The thing that I was actually a little surprised about, but it makes sense going back to that being that good fat burning machine, the group that did the lower intensity work, so they trained at 85% of VO2 peak. So that for a lot of people is right around threshold, maybe a, a little below. Mm -hmm. They actually saw improvements, mm. performed a, a little bit better. So yeah, you're a bit of a fat-burning machine. If you're going to be doing low intensity, if you want to do sprint workouts, probably not a good idea to, to do it fasted. Uh, but if you're riding to work, if you're doing something lower intensity, it's Is there it's not an adaptive process here? So the more you do rides like this, the better your body is able to handle that? Or... I haven't seen any research on that, but you know my general opinion on this, which is it is amazing what the body can adapt to. Mm -hmm. Generally, whatever you throw at the body, it figures out a way to adapt to it. Right. So probably. Yeah. Uh, if you got up one morning and tried to ride fasted and you've never done it before, probably going to be a little tough. If you do it every morning, you're going to get used to it. Mm -hmm. Another key thing to remember is... Bonking and being glycogen depleted are not the same thing. And this is a, 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 a square is a rectangle, but not all rectangles are a square thing. <laughs> right. If you glycogen deplete, you will most likely bonk. You are going to be miserable. Mm -hmm. It's not a fun experience. But bonking, you're not always glycogen depleted when you bonk. Gotcha. Following me? Yes. Basically, a bonk is when there is a drop in your blood sugar levels. So you are not adequately supplying the brain with its typical fuel. So we're not even going to go right. This question, this is not somebody who's eating a keto diet. This is, they are not in a state of ketosis. So that, that's a whole different discussion. Correct. 
So this is somebody where they are in a state where the brain is relying on glucose for fuel. Mm -hmm. So what is happening when they are bonking on that easy 45-minute ride is there's a drop in blood sugar. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of potential explanations for this. There are health issue explanations. Like if this is something that's constantly happening to you, go see your doctor. Get tested. See what's going on because there are, are health concerns that can lead to this. But... Let's just, for this question, address some of the normal ways. Right. And one of the most typical is what is called reactive hypoglycemia. And this is something to particularly be careful of for races. Remember that when you have a spike in insulin, one of the things insulin does is cause... So, sorry, take a quick step back. All the cells in your body on their own are not able to take up glucose from the blood unless there is a stimulus. They have what's called a, a transporter called a GLUT4 transporter. Normally those transporters sit within the cell. They have to be motivated to go to the surface of the cell to allow the glucose to be taken from the blood into the cell. So this way your body can very tightly control blood sugar levels. Insulin promotes GLUT4 transporters to come to the surface of the cell. You spike insulin when you eat so after a meal, insulin's going to be spiked, particularly after a high-carbohydrate meal, insulin's going to be mm -hmm. spiked. Uh, so if you eat, say, 45 minutes, an hour before your ride, you're going to elevate your insulin levels. There is another way to get GLUT4 transporters to go to the surface of cells, on muscle cells, and that's exercise. Mm -hmm. Exercise will promote GLUT4 activity without independent of insulin. Mm-hmm. So reactive hypoglycemia is when you get on the bike or you go out for a run, your insulin levels are spiked, so you already have GLUT4 transporters at the surface of many cells to bring down your blood sugar levels, and then you start exercising. That promotes further GLUT4 right. activity in the muscle cells, so all of a sudden your cells become these giant glucose absorbers. Your body can't respond well to it, and your blood sugar levels tank. Mm -hmm. And then you bonk. It's this combination of the two factors right. leading to this accumulation. And this of is why before. a lot of people have learned once you're within an hour of a race, don't eat. Now, you can start eating 10, 15 minutes before the race because that's not enough time for the insulin response. Mm -hmm. And once you're exercising, exercise shuts down. Not 100%, but it really blunts the insulin response. So mm -hmm. if you eat 10 minutes before the race, you are probably not going to have this react. Very unlikely you're going to have the reactive hypoglycemia response. Right. If you are somebody who's susceptible to this and you eat 45 minutes before a ride or a race, you can be bonking. Mm -hmm. It's not that you've depleted your glycogen. It's that you've tanked your blood, uh, your, your, your blood sugar levels. Great. And axe murderers, they can really tank your blood sugar. Well, your blood levels. <laughs> yes, your blood levels especially just bleed you dry. All right, moving on from the axe murderer, we've got a caller who left us a voicemail on our Google number. It's Adam from Massachusetts. Let's listen to Adam's question. Hi guys, this is Adam Shaevich from Boston, Massachusetts. I'd like to hear you talk about the role of self-acceptance as a cyclist and stretch goals. 
or ambitious goals. You know, I've been a lifelong cyclist. I'm now in my 50s. And there's certainly been many years where I've trained intentionally. And, you know, I've gotten as far as I could get in that work. And that wasn't very far as measured by, you know, cat one or two cyclists. But I loved it. So, you know, I had to learn how to accept my physiological limitations and still have a great time as a cyclist. I'm curious how you manage that in your own cycling lives, how you manage it with your clients. You know, again, this balance between self-acceptance as a cyclist and maintaining stretch goals. Thanks, well, and best I think of luck that's with the new, uh, a really uh, interesting Bye. question, Adam. And uh, I have a few points that I'd like to address. Uh, first of all, if you set ambitious goals and you're like me, uh, someone who's very task-oriented, um, my brain and hopefully others out there who are task-oriented, their brain sort of naturally begins to fill in these these gaps, uh, how to get from where you are to where you want to go, create this staircase that takes you to that goal. Now, that's, of course, assuming that it's a reasonable goal. This is a, uh, comes down to knowing yourself as an athlete, and there's ways to know yourself through experience, through... Um, uh, you know, analysis through questionnaires, through different things. Knowing what is achievable helps you understand whether it's ambitious and achievable or, you know, easy to achieve. So there's different, there's different parameters there. Too small and you'll sort of easily get to it and you won't get that, that true sense of achievement, that true reward from striving really hard to meet a goal. Too, too hard and maybe you just never get to to where you want to be. You never hit that goal and you get dejected. So you have to analyze things. You have to set appropriate goals for yourself. Again, to, to, to understand where is the appropriate place for that goal to be, I'm going to say, you know, working with a coach is going to be invaluable for that. But if you don't have a coach or you're not interested in using a coach, just talking to a friend. I mean, we all have sometimes this inappropriate sense of ourselves. Sometimes it's inflated because we got a big ego. Sometimes it's uh, the opposite. You know, we're, we're, we lack self-confidence, so we, we don't have this, this appropriate sense of, of where our skills, our strengths, our weaknesses, all of that. So working with someone else that knows you well can help you get a, a good sense of, of who you are as an athlete. And then that helps you set appropriate This goals. is something that is really important when I'm working with my athletes and one of the most important steps that we take in, in the early season. And I think Chris is, is spot on. You need to know yourself. And even though cycling or any endurance sport is a competitive sport, you really need to individualize your goals and not make it about the competition so meaning we live in boulder sep Kuss is one of the strongest guys in boulder i can say my goal this year is to beat sep Kuss. <laughs> i'm luck. just going to be disappointed <laughs> yeah, right, right that's really not a goal looking at what's you know what's my age what's my ability level what sort of time do i have so what I do with my athletes is a, a gap analysis to come up with goals where, and this takes that, that self-awareness that Chris is talking about, where first I have them identify their current level. And this can be relative to the people you ride in. So you can say, 
my current level is I am a cat three who's at the back of the field struggling to hang on. You have to be honest with yourself here. And you have to be, yeah, you have to be really honest. <laughs> right. And this is why sometimes I think it helps to have another person's perspective because, you know, let's face it, we're not always the best judge of ourselves. Yep. I still remember when I was up in Victoria, we had a guy there who was a character. Mm-hmm. And wasn't good on the self-awareness side. So he arrived and claimed he was the best climber at the center, even though every time we'd hit a long climb, he'd be the last one up. <laughs> yeah. So what happened was, it was great watching his, his mindset with this. If we were doing a 30-minute climb, we'd usually take the first 15 minutes pretty easy, all seated. And if we were going to race it, it would be the second 15 minutes of the climb. So that first 15 minutes, we're all seated. He'd be at the front of the group, mm-hmm. driving the pace. Right, right. Then the, the really strong guys in the group would stand up, attack, and, and he'd get popped. So he revised his self-assessment to, I am the best seated climber at the center. Qualifiers, yes. <laughs> so that's not good self-awareness. You need to be aware of yourself and honest with, with where you're at. Then the next step is the, what is the next level? And it needs to be an achievable level. So you can make it ambitious, but it needs to be achievable. So if your current level is, I'm at the back of the pack of the Cat 3s, next level is not go to the Olympics. Right, right, yes. That might be in your future, but that's not the next level. Next level might be finishing in the front group of the Cat 3s. Mm-hmm. And then next year, if you're finishing in the front group of the Cat 3s, you can say, winning Cat 3s. Identify something that, that's achievable for you. And then the goals are, set goals that show that you've achieved that next level. Right. I, that, that was one of the points I wanted to make was creating goals that are not subjective. Like, you know, for instance... Creating a goal that is tied to a metric rather than a result, because as we all know, bike racing, it, there's factors that are out of our control. Uh, weather, flat tires, these things that we cannot control. And if everything you have for a particular goal is tied to the result, I must win this race or else, then you're probably going to be disappointed more often than not because, um, you know, that's racing. Whereas if your metric is something more measurable, or sorry, your goal, if, if your goal is more measurable, there are some objective metrics you can apply to it, then you can have a better chance of assessing whether you achieved it or you need some work or, or something else. So be particularly careful when you're setting goals that yeah. they're not too For that subjective. reason, I always give my athletes both training goals and performance goals. Because we all want to perform. We all want to get results. I'm like, okay, let's have a little bit of that. Mm-hmm. So you can have events that, that you can target. But let's also have those training goals. So, for example, with that athlete says, okay, my you know next level for me is, is finishing in the lead group of Cat 3. A performance goal would then be I want to finish in the lead group in at least three Cat 3 races. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm always reluctant to pick a particular race. You get a flat tire. Yeah, exactly. So it's better to say in a Cat 3 race at some point in the season or in this case, to feel you truly achieved that level, finish in three Cat 3 races in the league group. Training goals are going to be, what do you need to do with your training? 
to, to be able to accomplish that performance goal. So it might be, well, so this is finishing the league group. I probably don't need to worry about a sprint, but I need to worry about my sustainable power. So you might set a, I want my FTP or MLSS or whatever metric you're using to be 30 watts higher next year, mm-hmm. stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Right. Now, having said all of this, I think athletes are naturally... Um, a lot of them are naturally uh, prone or prone is not the right word, but they want to set really big goals. They yes. want to set ambitious goals. I want to win nationals. I want to win this race. I want to win that crit, whatever it might be. And that's can sometimes be great because given the right person, that is going to motivate them to work really hard. And And as we both know, cycling takes a lot of work and working hard you know, reaps rewards. That being said, you're going to be disappointed if all you do is set really big goals. Something I've learned, the very, the the best athletes out there get past failures really quickly. And the very best athletes out there take what they learn from those failures and make improvements and learn a lot more from those failures than they do from any successes they've had. Would you, you've probably seen that. Yeah, one of the tricks I do myself is whenever I go to a really important race, the first thing I do is write down what is my next race to remind myself this is not the end all be all. Cycling, endurance sports, they are mean, mean. (laughs) Yeah. Companion. Uh, If you really, really care about a race, often... The, the gods of endurance sports have a way of knocking you down a little bit. As a matter of fact, a lot I, more people lose than win on right. race day. <laughs> I Every have time. found with my athletes, uh, I ask them to prioritize their races in A, B, and C. So A, you, you get like one A race a year. That's the really key race. You get a couple B races. And then most of the rest of your races are C. I find most athletes... If they're going to win, it's going to be a C race. And they want to make everything A and B. They're like, well, you know, C race, that means I don't care about it. And it's that not caring that sometimes they then go in and give their best performance. I have rarely ever seen athletes win that A race. Mm -hmm. Something either mindset gets to them or something just happens. You get a flat tire. Something goes wrong. Uh, you fly to the event and your bike doesn't arrive. Yeah, there's so many things. things. The worst example I've ever seen of this was a a friend, Erin Willock, who spent, and the story of her getting to the Olympics is, it would just make your jaw drop what she went through, right to when she got the Olympic selection for 2008. One of the other women who did not get the selection sued her And instead of spending the month before the Olympics preparing for the event, she spent it in court. Mm -hmm. Right. So it's this unbelievably tough journey. She got to the Olympics. The Olympic court, she was a climber, fantastic climber. The, The Beijing Olympics had a big climb right near the finish. This was a race tailor made for her. She hit that climb going into the finish, seventh wheel. She was in place for probably getting a medal. It was raining. A woman from a less experienced country mm-hmm. who didn't know how to handle this sort of pace, this sort of 
knocking his shoulders, that sort of thing, panicked, slid. Uh, uh, so uh, she was riding on the, the, the painted line in mm-hmm. the rain, crashed, took Aaron out. That was that? That was that. Yep. And I remember talking to Aaron afterwards, and the only thing she said to me was, I will never target a single event like that again. I've made this mistake, um, you know, like two seasons ago in cyclocross, I didn't care about any race except nationals. I said to myself, yep. and this was the season I said, hey, Trevor, I'm taking it seriously this year. Will you work with me? Will you be my coach? Yes, I will work with you, Chris. Let's do this. this um, teach him for getting me as his coach. <laughs> I had an incredible season. I, I was winning everything. Honestly, it didn't matter to me. I had done, I had... I don't want to come off like a, you know, an arrogant person or anything, but I had done that before with less training. Those races, this that particular season, were not my goal. It was right. nationals. I had come in second, third, fourth, fifth, and sixth at nationals. I said, you know, like this is this is, I want to do this thing finally, and I tied everything to that. Show up on race day. Conditions are miserable. This is for those out there who are listening. It's Louisville. I'm just not the greatest in certain conditions. We don't have tremendous mud. It just wasn't my day. I was a little off, and I came in seventh. Instead of the first place that I hadn't gotten before, I got the seventh place that I haven't gotten before. It was the the last place I wanted to be, and uh, it it sucked really bad. You tie everything to that. You put all your eggs in one basket, you break all the eggs, you know, like that's what happened. Well, what happened? I didn't even race cyclocross this year. And I'm not saying it was directly tied to that particular event, but it had a big it impact. Had a, it had an you impact. You were depressed after that yeah. nationals and you basically didn't touch a bike for a long time. Right. Right. Exactly. So ambitious goals are great. Just make sure they're not too ambitious. They're not tied to something that is out of your control in a way that a particular one single race. Uh, The more I have seen with athletes, the more I discourage targeting a single event. I I don't care what the event is. I don't care if you're going to the Olympics. Right. It's uh, get to the Olympics, still write down what your next race is. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Yep. Because you just don't know what's going to happen. You know, it's worth mentioning too, uh, we did an episode on mindset. We talked about task-oriented versus goal-oriented athletes and approaches. Uh, For those that want a little bit more on that, check out episode 55. All right, our uh, final question for today's episode comes from Norway, from Rickard Osmundsen. I'm 48 and have been commuting for almost 10 years and have been training more regularly for the last two years. I like the polarized approach. I don't race, but I try to train as if I did. From all I've learned, there is one thing missing with polarization, and that is variation throughout the year. When I hear about the sweet spot approach, there is a lot of talk about base, build, race specificity, and the structure seems very easy. When it comes to talk about polarized training, it is all about below LT1 and above LT2 and the distribution between them. I would love to hear about using polarized training throughout the whole year when it comes to variation and specificity. Trevor, I know you'll have plenty to say about this. The incredibly simple answer I'm going to give to this is there is a study that 
really helps to answer this question. That's got some great visuals. So, and it's open source. Anybody can grab it. So I would recommend go check out this study. And we'll uh, put the references in the show notes. Yeah. So the name of it is the training intensity distribution among well-trained and elite endurance athletes. Uh, the primary author is Thomas Stogel. This is a colleague of Dr. Seiler's. And as a matter of fact, this study was reviewed by Dr. Seiler. Great. Uh, and it has a great chart showing, basically summarizing all the, the research that has looked at, so remember, polarized, when we talk about polarized style of training, there, there's the three zones. The zone one, which is your low intensity, where in polarized training, you should be spending 80 plus percent of your time. Zone three is that high intensity, where you should be spending around 10%, it can vary percent of your time. And then that in between, which there's a lot of different names for it, uh, that's where a lot of the sweet spot work is. The polarized model says very little time there. Right. So this particular study or review uh, took all the studies that looked at a three-zone distribution among high-level endurance athletes and showed what the various stages of their seasons looked like. So you can see both the what the base or pre what they're calling the, the preparation period looks like. They have the what the pre-competition period looks like and what the competition period is like in multiple different sports. Mm -hmm. It's a great graph. A few things to point out. One is there is some variance through the season, but not all that much. Mm -hmm. uh, at the lowest point that Zone one training, and, and they are doing it by time and zone. Dr. Seiler has frequently talked about uh, percentage of your, your workouts. Right. So this particular study is, is time and zone. Um, and I'm just going to talk about cycling. You can look at the other sports. Cycling is a little different from a lot of the other sports, and I'll address that in a second. Zone one is still dominant throughout the year. At its lowest, it's 70% of time. Mm-hmm. At its highest, it's about 80% of time. Mm -hmm. So it really only varies between 70 and 80%. What you see in cyclists in the, the preparation period, so what we call the base period, is you're going to see a little less true high-intensity zone 3. So in one particular study from 2007, they were only seeing cyclists spending... So I'm looking at graphs here. It doesn't show the exact percent, but eyeballing it, I would say 3% of time. Right, right. So yep. they are just staying low intensity. They're doing almost no intensity in the preparation phase. Uh, where cycling is a little different from the other sports is you do see more time in that zone two. Mm -hmm. So they do some sweet spot work throughout the, the year. A couple explanations for that. One is there, you know, we spend a lot of time racing there. So there is some benefit for cyclists to be there. Mm -hmm. You also have to think of you know, other sports. So for example, skiers or runners, they don't go out and do five-hour runs or five-hour ski sessions. Their sessions are all shorter, so it's easier to be a little purist. Right. You go out for a two-hour run, it's all zone one. Mm -hmm. You do intervals, it's you warm up, you do your right. intervals, right. you cool down, you're done. Yep. When you're out doing a five-hour bike ride with rolling hills and everything else... Yeah, you just naturally end up... You're going to be doing some time in zone two. Exactly. Unavoidable. Once they get into the pre-competition period you see zone one drop down to about 70% of time. You see an increase in zone three to about 8% of time. And that zone two looks like it stays approximately the same at about, 
uh, for, uh, for for look at the, the cycling, one study shows cyclists spending about 20% of their time in zone two. The other one looks at, looks like about 11, 12%. Mm-hmm. Once you get into the competition period, zone one actually comes back up, almost back up to 80%. Hmm. The high intensity zone three stays about 8%. And so you're seeing during the competition period, cyclists become pure in terms of polarization. Yeah. So what you see is a reduction in that, that time in zone two. And it seems logical to me because mm-hmm. your your shorter rides you keep them really low and keep them really easy because you're just going to be going full gas when it comes race day and the the yep. it just makes sense. Yep. And also during the competition period, since you're tearing yourself apart on the weekend, you're doing more recovery rides. Exactly. So I think that's why you see a bit of a bump up in that zone one. Right. Once you hit the competition period. Other thing to be aware of that this doesn't really show is that zone three work. Well, it looks like the cyclists are doing very, very little zone three work during the, the preparation phase, but they'll do a little bit. Mm-hmm. The, the type of work can vary. And certainly what I do, you know, there, there's a lot of different philosophies on this, but certainly what I do with my athletes is something very similar to the, the research that Dr. Seiler did with that more, those more threshold type intervals. So mm-hmm. I, I do... He has that sequence of the four by fours, then the four by eights, then the four by sixteens. I right. actually, uh, even before I read that, uh, that's what my old coach gave to me and what I've always given to my athletes. Mm-hmm. And that might be where you're also seeing some of the zone two because that threshold work can can sometimes be in zone two right. or zone three. Right. It's right, right. at the edge. Yep. When you get into that pre-competition period and the competition period, that's where you might see more really high intensity work such as Tabata intervals come in. Yep. Dr. Tyler's addressed that and said, yeah, that, that work is valuable. I, I've seen many studies showing that with that type of work, it takes about six to eight, week, eight sessions uh, to see the full gains. That's not much. Which is not much. So with my athletes, I'll give them some Tabata style work or some really high intensity work, but if they're racing, say, in April... I'll start that work in, in March right? as a build-up, do a little more through the season. And then at the height of the race season, most of your intensity is coming from racing. Right. It's kind of like right before race season, your your training starts to look more and more like the racing you're about to do. Right. You don't and want that, to overdo that. That goes back to, we did that episode with, with Joe Friel, and that was his big philosophy on the periodization is as you get closer and closer to the race season, your training should look more and more like racing. So if you're a, a road ri- racer and a breakaway specialist, you probably still want to keep up a lot of threshold work. Mm-hmm. You want to be doing some lo- a lot of longer work. If you're a crit rider, you want to be doing really high intensity. You want to be doing sprint work. You want to be doing training crits. Mm-hmm. So yep. what that zone three looks like as you get close to the season is dependent, as you said, on the, on the type of race that you're doing. Yeah. So it sounds like, to answer Ricard's question in a very simple sentence, like you started off, there isn't really a ton of variation right. all throughout and the year. And particularly in that zone one. Exactly. So you, what you're seeing from at least these studies is the zone one during that pre-competition period dropped down to 70%. The rest of the time, it's up around 80%. So yep. it's a small variance. 
And it's, it's definitely worth noting for those of you out there who have not already listened to our previous episodes about uh, the polarized approach. We have some great episodes with Dr. Seiler, who is sort of the person who has popularized that approach and done a lot of research in the field. Episodes 51 and 54 will give you a great overview of that approach in more detail. So check those out. That was another episode of Fast Talk. As always, we love your feedback. Email us at fasttalk at fastlabs.com or call 719-800-2112. That's a palindrome for anybody who cares. I just got a big thumbs up from Chris. Thank you. <laughs> and you called me the nerd. <laughs> Again, that's 719 800 2112 and leave us your questions in a voicemail and if we answer it on the show we will play your question subscribe to fast talk on itunes stitcher spotify soundcloud google play or wherever you prefer to find your favorite podcasts be sure to leave us a rating and a review while you're there the thoughts and opinions expressed in fast talk are those of the individuals for chris case the axe murderer i'm trevor connor Thanks for listening.